Good morning, church. It's so good to, uh, to be here, uh, even though you're not here. Uh, we long for this room to be filled again and pray uh, desperately that God would make that happen soon. So happy Mother's Day to all of our moms. If you're a mom and you're watching this, we just want you to know that, uh, that we honor that. God honors that. It's an incredibly important role that you play and has extreme value in the kingdom of God. And so happy Mother's Day to you. Um, this morning we're going to be taking a break from our study of the book of Genesis. Um, I don't typically take a break from our uh, normal preaching through books of the Bible on holidays and even on holidays like this. Uh, but since we're in a passage of uh, Genesis, we're in a part of Genesis, uh, the, the Genesis narrative that is uh, talking about a family that is very messed up and very dysfunctional, including the mom in the story, I thought it would be a little bit more encouraging for us to go through a passage of Scripture that would be more encouraging for you. And so if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, uh, this morning I would ask that you turn to Psalm 127. Um, if you look at your Bible uh, at Psalm 127, it is self-titled. It's called A Song of Ascents. And that makes sense because it's a part of the grouping of the Psalms, the final grouping of the Psalms in the book of Psalms, that is the Song of Ascents. And so these are a grouping of the psalms that were literally songs, poetry put to music, that were sung by God's people in the temple. And so uh, that's what this psalm is. And it says that it's written by Solomon. That's part of the inspired word of God. It says a song of ascents of Solomon. And so it was one of only two psalms that was written by Solomon. And if you, you might recognize some of the verses from Psalm 127. It includes um, a very familiar encouragement uh, for families and for moms and dads um, and parents and raising children. But the central focus of Psalm 127 is not that of raising children, is not, not that of childbearing, but it instead, instead the central focus of this psalm is that the sovereign creator of the universe, the Lord our God, gives rest to his beloved and helps them in their work. And so follow along in your copy of the scriptures as we read Psalm 127. This is the word of God. A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you so much for the privilege it is this morning to utilize technology like this 
to be able to gather virtually as God's people called New Branch Community Church and worship you and sing the songs that we just did in celebration of your glory and your greatness and your grace. And now the privilege that it is to sit under the teaching of your word, not under my teaching, because Lord, your people do not need my teaching. Those who are listening on this this feed, are, 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 they do not need my teaching. They need your teaching. And so, um, Father, we're so grateful that this book that we hold in our hands, that we just read from, um, is your teaching to us. It is your word, your inspired writings. Um, and we thank you, Father, that you chose to use King Solomon in this case to write down your words to us. And so, Father, we pray that they would have their intended impact on our lives whether we're moms or dads or whoever we are and whatever work we're involved in. I pray, Father, that this passage of Scripture, this psalm, would bring encouragement, would bring rest to weary souls, and would remind us that we who know you through Jesus Christ, we are your beloved, whom you love and give rest to, even in our work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Psalm 127 has been attacked by Bible critics over the years, and the reason is because it appears as though uh, Psalm 127 is just a combination of two completely unrelated poems that are just kind of slammed together. And, and, and Bible critics say that not because there's some kind of manuscript evidence that there were two poems, but because verses 1 and 2 look so desperately different from verses 3 through 5. Verses 1 and 2 are all about building a house and, and watching over a city. And then verses 3 through 5 are about children being a heritage from the Lord and being a, a reward from the Lord. And so it seemed, they seem completely unrelated, but it only seems that way. While in reality, there is a great deal of connection between those two parts of this psalm. And I want to give you a couple of those very clear connections this morning. One is, in verse 1, that Hebrew word for house. That's a very common Hebrew word in the Old Testament. It's used over 2,000 times in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament. And it basically it refers sometimes to a physical building, a physical house. But many times it also refers to a household or a family, and it's often translated in some English translations as a family when, it, when it's referred to the house of Jacob or the house of Abraham and so forth. And so there's that clear connection that he's talking about in verse 1, building a house, and in verses 3 through 5, building a heritage from the Lord referring to a family. There's a connection there. But, but a second connection that's really clear is that Psalm 127 is an example of of parallelism. Now, this was a, this was a common um, uh, instrument in ancient Hebrew poetry, this idea of parallelism. They loved to, to compare things, and so they would put things in parallel in order to compare them, and as they compared them, we're learning things about them. And so verses 3 through 5 are in parallel with verses 1 and 2. The foundational statements that we find in the first two verses give way or paralleled in verses 3 through 5 with an application. 
And we'll see that more when we get to those verses. So there is this strong connection between the two halves of the psalm. They're not unrelated, but it will help us to deal with them in those two sections um, so that we can understand both the foundational statements and the applications that those statements give rise to. Now, we immediately notice in verses 1 and 2 this repetition that helps us to begin to understand what the Lord is talking about in this psalm. We see the repetition of the word vain. Solomon, of course, talks a lot about vanity. In the book of Ecclesiastes, he talks about it over and over again. He says, all is vanity. All is meaningless. That's what vanity means. Meaninglessness. Pointlessness. Vanity. So he says in verses 1 and 2, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. So we see that there are three things that he calls vain in verses 1 and 2. First, there is uh, trying to build when the Lord's not in it. That's vanity. Secondly, there's staying awake and watching over a city when the Lord's not watching over a city. That's vain. And then thirdly, it is vanity to rise up early and go late to, to bed eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Now, the first two are easier for us to understand than the third. The principle from verse 1 is plain. Unless the Lord does the work, those who labor in that work labor in vain. So what is the work that he's talking about? Well, we see it in verse 1. The first part of verse 1, he talks about building a house. And in the second part of verse 1, he talks about watching over a city. Now, what's this in reference to, this building of a house? Are we to understand this literally? Is Solomon talking about literally building a physical building, a physical building that people reside in, a house? Well, possibly. That certainly could be one of the applications of this, that he's talking about construction of a, of a physical house. But Psalm 127 has many more applications than just construction of a physical building. The idea of building here carries with it the connotation of creating, of making something. And so this could be whatever it is that we build, whatever it is that we create or or make or, or produce, whether it's a city or a building or whether it's a job, a career, or whether it's a life, or a church, or a family, and a home. And this is what we do as people who are made in the image of God. See, see, as image bearers, we are fundamentally creators. We follow in our Father's footsteps. We, we, we are creators. We make things. We produce, we, we, we build, we make things with our hands, with our heart, and with our head. But the warning here is that if we build and if we create and if we make, apart from God's building and creating and making, then our efforts at doing so are 
pointless. They're meaningless. They're vanity, Solomon says. See, the psalmist wants us to see something here. He wants us to see that while we are builders, so is God. God is building. And our efforts to build are pointless if God, the builder, is not in it. And the same is true for the watchman in the second half of verse 1. Who, who are they? Who are these watchmen? Well, they, they're the guards uh, that would stand post on the towers overlooking the city or, or the, the high places of the wall that surrounded the city. And their job was to, to look out during the watches of the night for a surprise attack from the enemy. And if they saw a surprise attack coming, if they saw the enemy approaching the city, then their job was to both warn the city of the attack and to protect the city from the attack. But Solomon's point here is the same as with the builders, that the watchmen who are staying awake at night watching over the city, that they're simply wasting their time watching over the city if the Lord isn't watching over the city. So as we begin to kind of piece together our interpretation of this psalm and try to understand what it means, we need to see, first of all, that we are the builders in this psalm. We're the ones who are laboring at, at, at building a house or a job or a career or a family or a home or whatever it is. We're, we're the builders and we are the watchers, staying awake at night. We're, we're those who are protecting and preserving and the warning is that though we build and though we protect, though we create and though we watch, our efforts at building and protecting are in vain unless the Lord is building and protecting. And the good news is that he is. He is building and he is protecting. He's building his kingdom. He's building his church. He's building you. Right now, he's, you're, you're, you and I are, are a work in progress in Christ. He's building you. He's growing you. He's, he's building your faith. He's building your trust in him. And he's building your family. He's building your children. And he's even building some things that we might otherwise call secular or unspiritual, like, like your job. He's building your job. He's building your career. He's building your retirement account. And so the same could be said of all of those things, right? Unless the Lord builds it, those who build labor in vain. Similarly, God is not only building, he's also protecting. He promises to never leave us or forsake us. He promises to always be with us. We're told by the Apostle Paul that he's upholding the universe. He's, he's sustaining the universe around us, protecting us. He gave us the Holy Spirit to, to guide us and protect us and to help us. And so what we get from verse 1 is that the Lord is at work. The Lord is at work building and watching, creating and protecting. And so are we. And we are to continue in that work. But we are to do so with the understanding that the decisive activity 
in working and building and protecting is God's work, not ours. We participate, we're a part of it, but the decisive activity in that building and protecting is not our work, but God's work. And so Solomon is not telling us, he's not telling us here not to work. That's not what he's saying at all. He's not telling us not to work hard. We should work hard. As image bearers of our Father, uh, we operate as image bearers when we work. And when we work hard and diligently at building and protecting and so forth. But as we do these things, we, we, we do them with the acknowledgement, with the recognition that the decisive activity in that working, in that building and protecting and preserving, is God's. So I think there are two kind of broad principles to pull from verse 1 as we kind of assimilate all of this to try to understand it. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, um, there's a warning. Uh, your, your labor, really in verse 1, your, your labor is in vain if the Lord's not in it. If the Lord's not in it, your labor is in vain. That's a warning. But there's also an encouragement there that if the Lord is in it, then your labor is not in vain. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, which is almost right at the tail end of his first letter to the church in Corinth. And he, he's seeking to encourage them, and he does so by saying this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work, the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What good news is that? That our labor in the Lord, if he's in it, then our labor in that work, whatever it is, is not in vain. It's not in vain. And that's a great encouragement to us. So we see those, those first two um, things that Solomon calls vanity in verse 1. First of all, building a house if the Lord's not in it, and watching over a city if the Lord's, uh, Lord's not watching over it. But there's a third vanity that he gives us in verse 2. He says, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. So what exactly is the third vanity there in verse 2? Well, it's not rising up early and going to bed late, because that's not all, all of what that verse says. It's not rising up early and going to bed late. It is rising up early and going to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil. That's the vanity. Rising up early and going to late, rest, to late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. That Hebrew word there for the, the bread of anxious toil is, is the, the concept of very burdensome work. Burdensome toiling, anxious toiling, worrying in your toiling. Worrying because you think it's all up to you. That if anything of any lasting value is going to happen, it's going to happen because you are doing the work. And Solomon says that is vanity. And then he gives a reason for why that's vanity at the end of the verse. He says, for he gives to his beloved sleep. And friends, I believe that to be the, 
the key message of this entire song. That he gives to his beloved sleep. Who are his beloved? His beloved are those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope for rescue from what they deserve. That their hope for reconciliation to God is Jesus' perfect righteousness in his life and Jesus' substitutionary death at Calvary. Those who have placed their faith in that work are his beloved. So friend, if you've placed your faith in Christ as your only hope for rescue, you are the object of what he's saying there at the end of verse 2. You are his beloved, and, and he has given his beloved sleep. So Solomon is painting a picture here in verses 1 and 2. And it's the picture of a man who's working and toiling and laboring at something. He's, he's, he's building a house, and he's, he's watching over a, a, a city. And you can fill in the blank there by way of application with, with whatever product you're working for. Whatever, whatever thing it is that you're working at and seeking to preserve and protect. But he's toiling here at, at, at building a house and watching over a city. And he's toiling at this feverishly as if it all depended on him. That if there's anything of any lasting value that he's going to accomplish in his working, it is going to be because of his work. And so he's toiling so hard at this. He's getting up early in the day. He's toiling all day long with his burdensome, anxious toiling. And he's going late into the night, burning the candle at both ends, such that he goes to bed late at night. Not because he loves his work, not because there's a joy of his work, because he feel, but because he feels the pressure that if anything of any lasting value is going to happen, it's going to, be, it's going to happen because of his working. And so he works really hard. And, and there's, there's, there's this is anxious toiling. There's no restfulness in him. He's not characterized by restfulness. There's, there's no rest in him. Even when he goes to bed at night, he can't sleep because he's thinking about his work. And Solomon warns his readers against that by saying, that man, he's just spitting in the wind. That, that, that life he's living is a, is, a, is a pointless life. It's a waste. It's vanity, he says. But then Solomon gives us the opposite of that wasted life at the end of verse 2 when he says, For he has given to his beloved sleep, rest. Now let's be very, very clear here. Solomon is not advocating laziness. He's not advocating not working and not working hard. He's not advocating not rising up early and, and, and working late and long. That is not what he's saying here. Instead, he's advocating to acknowledge that it is God's working that is the decisive activity even when we are working. His is the decisive activity, not ours. And so I am to work, and I am to work hard, I am to build, I am to create, I am to preserve, I am to protect whatever it is in my life that God has given to me to work on. But I am to do so acknowledging that if it's going to be successful work, that if it's going to be any work of any lasting value, then God's got to be in it. It'll be his work that makes the difference. I'll work in it. I'll partner with him. I'll be a part of it. Praise God that I have a part in that. 
But the decisive part is God's working. And there's a restfulness to that. There's a confidence in that. And so while we might still get up early and, and, and work late into the night, it's not because we're anxiously worried that unless we're burning the candle at both ends, nothing of any lasting value is going to happen. No, we, we work hard at it and we work long at it because, because we love it, because we enjoy work, and because um, in, in some way it's a form of worship as we continue to work as image bearers. So we enjoy uh, showing forth the image of God and, and working hard and diligently. But ultimately, we work hard building and protecting restfully. We work hard, but we work hard restfully because he gives rest to his beloved. You see, see the Christian ought to give evidence of his faith by how he works. Does he work frenetically, frantically, feverishly, um, eating the bread of anxious toil, as he says here, as if it all depended on us? Or do we work restfully? Still working hard, but working hard restfully, trusting that if God is in it, it'll happen. And Trusting him so much that, that we can even sleep. I love the picture of sleep here. I love, I love how God directed Solomon through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to, to, to give us that picture of sleep here. The end of verse 2 there is somewhat debatable. Some say, as the ESV translation does, he gives to his beloved sleep. Others say it should read, as it does in other English translations, he gives to his beloved when they sleep. But either of those is true. And the point here is that God's beloved, that's us, remember, that, that's those who have, who, who have trusted in Jesus Christ and his redeeming work on the cross as their only hope to be rescued and forgiven and given eternal life. We are his beloved and his beloved trusts the Father so implicitly that even in the midst of uncertainty, even in the midst of scarcity of whatever it is, we trust that God will do his work. That God will do his work even through the, the normal rhythms of work and rest. So much so that we can even put our head on the pillow at night and sleep soundly knowing that our God never sleeps, that he's not resting, and that he's still working on behalf of his beloved. Think about it. We're told by the Apostle Paul that God's power is perfected in our weakness, right? That's what the Lord told the Apostle Paul when he asked three times for the thorn to be removed from his side. The Lord told him, no, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is perfected in your weakness. Well, friend, when are we ever more weak than when we are asleep? When we're asleep, we are, we are weak, we are vulnerable, we are defense, defenseless, and we are completely and absolutely unproductive. 
There's absolutely nothing being marked off our to-do list while we sleep. But God's still marking those things off. God's still working. As we put our head on the pillow at night, we rest and we sleep. We do so trusting and knowing that he's still at work because he never sleeps. He's still working for his beloved. You see, the Christ follower that has learned to fully trust God in every area of his life sleeps like a baby at night. And the immature Christ follower who is still struggling to trust God in some areas of his life, well, he struggles with sleep and he struggles to be at rest. Now, I know that there are physiological reasons why people can't sleep and and, but outside of those, outside of those physiological reasons, by and large, the one who is able to sleep, the one who is able is to rest, the believer who is able to rest is the one who implicitly trusts the Father in all of his work. So I think the exhortation for us here in the first couple of verses is this. It is that we build and we watch We create and we produce and we protect and we preserve, but we do so restfully. And we do those things restfully for two reasons. One, because we trust that it's God's work that is the decisive action here. And secondly, we do these things restfully because we're embracing being his beloved And we know and believe and trust that he gives to his beloved rest and peace and sleep. Now before we unpack some of the areas of our lives to which this has very real application day in and day out, I want to direct our attention to verses 3 through 5 at the end of this psalm, which gives us one of those areas of application. Look at verses 3 through 5. He says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. Now again, on the surface, uh, this seems completely unrelated to the first two verses, right? It seems like Solomon does a 180 degree turn here. But he doesn't really. I mentioned earlier that this was an example of parallelism. And we see here that that, that Solomon is using children in the home as an example of building and protecting. See verse 3 here where he talks about children are a heritage from the Lord. that's, that's, That's a parallel to the one who's building the house. And verses 4 through 5 is is a parallel to to those who are staying up late at night watching over and protecting the city. Let's look at this a little bit closer so I can show you how this fits. Verse 3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. So instead of building a house here, now he's talking about building a heritage, building a home which children are that heritage. They are, they are, they are the, the members of that home, that household, that heritage that is being built. And so mom and dad, what do they do? They labor at building that heritage. They labor at building that family. They labor at having children. 
And lo and behold, not in all cases, but in some cases, they get pregnant. And the fruit of the labor is in their womb. But it's not from them. Solomon makes it very clear. Children are a heritage from the Lord. It's not their doing, it's his doing. They labored at it, but it was his work in creating the children. He says the fruit of the womb is a reward. It's a gift. It's a gracious gift from God. But the mom and dad are just the grateful recipients of this gift. The giver, the giver of this gift is God. That's what he wants us to see. And so we see here, just as the guy in verse 1, who's building a house, the decisive activity in the building of that house was not that guy, but it was God's work in building. And the same is true here. The husband and wife are are laboring at child-rearing, but the decisive activity is God's. And there's restfulness in that, is there not? There's peace in that. And that restfulness is a byproduct of trusting that God is completely sovereign in the opening and the closing of the womb. And so while we are at work at it, we work at it not as as if we're eating the bread of anxious fruit, anxious toil, but as one who trusts that the decisive activity in child-rearing is not our work, but God's work. And then verses 4 through 5 parallel the protecting that we saw in the second half of verse 1, where Solomon was talking about watching over a city, staying up late, staying up over the watches of night, and watching over a city and protecting it. Verses 4 through 5 are a parallel of that. Look what he says, Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth, Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now, how does that parallel protecting? Well, he's, again, he's talking about children here. And he says that children are like arrows in the quiver of the warrior. Now, when he mentions the warrior, we ought to be reminded of the watchman from the second half of verse 1. Remember, the watchman is the guard or the warrior that's placed up on the tower, placed up on the high part of the wall surrounding the city, and put there to protect the city and and to watch out for a secret attack. And and if that secret attack happens, if if the enemy begins to get close to the wall, then the watchman will both warn the city and will rain down arrows on the enemy in order to protect the city. So how are children like the arrows of the watchman? Well, he says there, says the man who has a full quiver of them is blessed, and he will not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. So think about the picture there that Solomon is drawing for us. The picture there is that of a man, he's at the gate of the city. And opposite him, right in front of him, in this, at this gate, are his enemies. And they're lined up. And they're threatening him. And they're very intimidating to him. But behind the man are his children. And they're grown now. 
They're, they're, they're adults. And he says they're, they're like arrows in that man's hand. And those arrows are all pointing at the enemies of this man such that they don't bother him. They're protected. Um, he's protected by his children. So his children, which are, are, are a gift from the Lord, become the means by which this man is protected from his enemies. Watched over. And thus, as God's beloved, he can enjoy rest. You see, verses 3 through 5, as beautiful as they are, and as appropriate as they are for a sermon on Mother's Day, what they are is an example of the building and protecting that we see in verses 1 and 2. Of how we work and build and create and work hard and protect and preserve and all of that. But that we do so restfully. Because there is an acknowledgement that the decisive activity is God's. That God is building and protecting. And so for this man, there is no eating of the bread of anxious toil for him. Instead, there is rest. Because he trusts that the Lord is working and building and protecting in his family. There are a myriad of other applications to our life from this psalm. What about the workaholic? who feverishly burns the candle at both ends. Not, not because he enjoys the grace of work. Not, not, not because he, that's a, a, an act of worship for him. But because he's nervous. He's anxious. Because, it, because he believes that, that, that the only way it's going to happen is, is up to him. If there's anything of any lasting value that he's going to leave here as a result of his work. It's going to be because he worked hard. He believes it all depends on him. And when he goes to bed, he can't sleep because he's thinking about his work. There's a restlessness in him. He's characterized by, by restlessness because he has forgotten that unless the Lord builds it, those who build it labor in vain. What about the pastor who wants to see his church grow? Who wants to see people come to faith in Christ? Wants to see the, the baptismal waters stirred often by new converts? What about the mature woman of faith? The, 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 the lady who's, who, who wants to disciple younger women, younger moms... She wants to work hard and labor and, and, and toil diligently in that work. What about the young believer who's trying to share the gospel with everyone that he can and he wants so desperately and he wants so deeply for many people to come to faith in Christ through his proclamation of the gospel? What about the young man who wants to grow in his faith? He wants to be conformed to the image of Christ and he works hard at it. What about the young man who wants to fight against sin and overcome temptation in his life in order to glorify God? And what about the mom who all of a sudden has become a homeschool parent because of a quarantine and she labors furiously at that task? What would Solomon do Tell each of them. Well, based on Psalm 127, I believe that he would tell them to work hard. 
to work hard, but to work restfully, trusting that it is God's work in each of those situations that is decisive. If God wills that that church would grow, if God wills that that that, that woman who's trying to disciple younger moms would disciple a bunch of younger moms, if God wills that many would come to faith through the testimony of that young believer, if God wills that that young, that that young man, that young adult man, would, would grow in his faith and overcome temptation, if God wills that that mom would see faithfulness and, and fruitfulness in her children as she takes on the role of, of homeschool, if that's what God wills, then it will happen, even when those who are working feverishly at those tasks sleep and are at rest. And so Solomon would tell them to acknowledge that it is God's work that's that's the decisive activity here in each of these areas. And so work hard, but work restfully as God's beloved. You know, Paul, the Apostle Paul, addresses this very same concept in three different letters to churches. It was that important to him. I would encourage you to write these down and go back and memorize these. These are great verses to implement into our lives, to remind us that we work, but really the decisive activity is God's work in us. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul is talking about our sanctification, our growing in Christ-likeness. And he says, Therefore, my, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So who's the one who's working in our sanctification, in our being formed into the likeness of Christ? Is it God working? Yes. Is it us working? Yes. But it is God's work that is decisive. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's heavy work. That's heavy toiling and laboring. But he says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Oh, that's such an encouragement. That brings such rest to our souls in our working, knowing that he's working through us. 1 Corinthians 15, 10. Um, He's talking here, Paul's talking here about his work as an apostle of Christ in his gospel ministry. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Wait a second, Paul. I thought you were talking about God's grace here. God's grace, you said. God's grace towards me was not in vain. But then he says, I worked harder than any of them. So he's working here. And what does he say? Though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. So in his gospel work, in his apostleship, Paul is working and he's working hard. But he recognizes that Christ in him was the decisive work. And then finally, Colossians 1.29, where he's talking about his work to present his hearers, to present his readers as mature in Christ, as complete in Christ. And he says in verse 29 of verse 1, for this I toil. What does he toil for? He toils at the work of gospel ministry, seeking to disciple his readers, to disciple his, his followers, 
so that they would be mature in Christ, so that they would be complete in their faith. He says, for this I toil. And then he goes even harder, struggling. So it's a struggling toiling that he's got here. That's heavy labor. That's heavy work. But listen to what he says. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he so powerfully works in me. Wow, that is so good. That is so reassuring. That can bring such rest to our soul as we seek to work. He says, for this I toil. I'm working hard. But really, the decisive work is Christ. He's working his his energy is, is working so powerfully within me. I got a role. I'm part of it. I, I'm, I'm working. Praise God, I'm, I'm working in this. But, but it is ultimately it is God who is at work, and that makes all the difference. You see, in each of these, Paul is talking about toiling and laboring and doing hard work, but with a confident recognition that our work is only effective as long as as God is at work in us and through us. The same is true in this this building activity that Solomon talks about. This building and creating and preserving and protecting and watching over. Whatever it is that we're building, whether we're building and creating a church and protecting a church or or, uh, a career or a community or a family or children or whatever it is, We are to work and we are to work hard, but we are to work restfully as his beloved because we trust that he's at work. We believe that it is his working that is decisive. So mom and dad, I can ask both of you, we'll focus on moms this morning. Mom, are you eating the bread of anxious toil in your work? Dad, are you? Young person, are you? Christian, are are you eating the bread of anxious toil? Feverishly at work in whatever it is, as if it all depended on you. That if there's going to be anything of any lasting value, it's going to be because of you. Are you eating the bread of anxious toil? If so, then I want to encourage you to learn to trust in the sovereignty of God. Because... That kind of working, working feverishly as if it all depended on us, is, is just a, a practical kind of atheism. It, it, is a, it is a kind of working that simply displays a lack of faith in God. So learn how to trust in God's sovereignty and learn how to be at rest in your soul. Learn how to be at rest in your work. Learn how to embrace being God's beloved and trusting that he gives his beloved rest and sleep. And by the way, this idea of resting from your work, that points us to the gospel, does it not? Because, you know, I, 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 can, I, can, never, I, I can never work enough to earn forgiveness and to earn eternal salvation. I can never work enough to earn that. But that doesn't prevent me from trying. That doesn't prevent you and I from trying to earn that. And so we labor at doing good. We labor at good works. And we try harder. And we eat the bread of anxious toil. 
thinking that it all depends on us for salvation and forgiveness. And it's absolutely exhausting and it's utterly vain. But when God opens your heart and mind to the truth of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus lived the perfect life, the perfectly righteous life that you and I never could. And then he went to a cross bearing the punishment and the penalty of all of his children, all those who would place their faith in him. When God awakens us to that truth and and he opens our hearts and minds to that good news in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we can rest from our work at trying to earn it and we can rest in his work on our behalf as we place our faith in Jesus as our only hope for rescue from what we deserve. And then once he gives us that new life in Christ, once he gives us faith in Jesus and he welcomes us into the family, then what does he do? Then he gives us work to do. That's why Ephesians 2.10 follows Ephesians 2.8 and 9. We know 2.8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is a not a result of, um, that, that, that is not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not a result of works lest any man should boast. Our, our, our salvation, our rescue from what we deserve is not a result of our working, right? We have to rest from our working and, and trust in Christ's work on our behalf. But then verse 10 follows Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And it says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, he has recreated us in Christ and then he has given us work to do. He's given us work to do in our lives as long as he has us on this planet. But even then, as we do that work, we know that it is Christ's work in us that is the decisive activity. And so we work hard, but we work hard not restlessly and not anxiously, but we work and we work hard restfully, knowing the rest of God. And what is that rest? What does that kind of rest look like? I want to close with Jesus' words describing his rest in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Remember what a yoke is. It's what they put on the oxen to pull the plow. So it's a symbol of work. So Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. There's work involved. But what does he say? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, then take his yoke. Um, Work hard. Work hard at the work that he has in front of you. But do so knowing that you are his beloved. It's his work that really matters in the end, ultimately. 
and he has given you rest. and He has given you sleep. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and you're working at this, I want to exhort you. I want to encourage you to consider the claims of Christ, which says that your working will never be enough. But Christ's work is finished and it is enough. Will you place your faith in Jesus as your only hope for rescue? Would you pray with me? Our God and King, what good news this is to moms and dads, believers, young and old, that though we work and we work hard, it is a grace to be able to work, to work for you, but we work knowing that if anything of any lasting value is going to happen, it's not because of our toiling, it's because of what you are doing. May we rest in that, Father. May we find peace and shalom and, and confidence in the fact that you are working. Lord, even when we sleep at night, may you give our people, Lord, may you give them rest in their soul as they work. Father, forgive us for eating the bread of anxious toil, thinking that it depends on us. How prideful and how silly of us to think that. May we work and work hard as if it all depended on you. And in so doing, may we be at rest. And Father, we pray for those among us in our homes, in our communities. Perhaps one of them is listening right now. Just kind of stumbled across this feed. And they are trying to earn your favor. They are trying to make themselves acceptable to you. And that is hard, hard work. Father, show them the folly of that path. Show them that they could never earn forgiveness and reconciliation to you. And then show them Jesus who finished that work on the cross. And God, we ask that you would give them the faith to trust in this Jesus Christ as their only hope for rescue, to make him their Lord, to make him their Savior and Redeemer and Rescuer. And then, Father, you're going to give them work and help them, Father, to trust in you in that work. We love you, Father. Thank you for this word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.